Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups, no more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Part of the reason I think that white nationalism is so easily grown is because there is a need for belonging and a need for a mission. You know, they talk about with Timothy McVeigh, he got out of the military. He thought he would be easily employable because he had had served and he felt like he peaked in the military and he got out and nobody wanted him and there was no connection for him to be found within his community. He didn't feel of service. He didn't feel like he was needed. And so there was a fertile ground to be played upon with these ideologies, much in the same way that happens with jihadism, right? Like you, you have young men who feel purposeless, who feel unwelcome or pushed around or just inessential. And they want to feel a part of something. And we have to face that. And we have to recognize that. And we have to stop blowing it off in the ways that we have have done for so long. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. everyone. On today's episode, we are going to be doing a news roundup. We feel like there are a lot of not huge stories, but important stories that we want to cover in our first segment. In our main segment, we're going to be talking about the events in New Zealand and the rise of white nationalism. And to close out our show, as we always do, we'll be talking about what's on our mind outside politics. We want to be sure that you find us on the Mama Bear Dares podcast. Today, we had such a fun conversation with Tessie at Mama Bear Dares about politics and grace and how womanhood and being moms impacts how we feel about political discussion. We love that conversation. Check out Mama Bear Dares. 
We also wanted to send out this reminder again to all our new listeners, people who are new to the Pansy Politics community. We absolutely love hearing from our listeners. So you can email us at sarah at pantsypoliticsshow.com or beth at pantsypoliticsshow.com anytime to share an article, share a thought, share feedback. The only thing we ask is that if you do not need to respond, you are just sharing because you want us to read this or know about this podcast, then please add no need to respond to the subject line of your email because we love you guys so much and we appreciate your feedback. So we want to give feedback if that's what you're looking for. But if you're just looking to share, just put no need to respond in the subject line. The Midwest has been hit by historic flooding. It's such a weird time of year to be talking about historic flooding, but particularly in Nebraska, but lots of parts of the Midwest, Things have gotten really dangerous. A Nebraska farmer was killed trying to rescue a stranded motorist. Other people are missing. There were preparations being made to shut down a nuclear power plant along the rising Missouri River. And this is just a very dangerous situation. It kind of reminds me of the part of our book where we talk about our neighbors are in trouble. You know, how can we help them? Our flood wall is up in Paducah right now because of the rain that's been the last few weeks. Really, really strong storms. And flooding is just, I keep thinking about something that Mayor Pete said about climate change and the impact of climate change. And people tend to think about it being on the coasts. But they had historic flooding in Indiana that really impacted many of his neighbors. And there's always flooding as a concern in my area of the country. And I think these thousand-year storms that are now coming along more and more often is something to keep in mind, and it's to see the the impact of our changing climate in the middle of the country, not just on the coast. And in the middle of the country, there are lots of small cities that are mm-hmm. having kind of existential moments, right? If yeah. a city is flooded and so much infrastructure destroyed in a place where you don't really have the tax base to rebuild, mm-hmm. it's a crisis, There was a state senator from Nebraska quoted on NPR this morning as saying it's an existential crisis for so many of these small towns. I mean, I think you even see it on the coast. You know, there's all this talk about Paradise, California, where should we rebuild? Can we rebuild? When a climate event wipes out your infrastructure, your neighborhoods, sometimes even the government itself, you know, the city halls are closed down. It really is. It's a tough thing to think about. And it's a tough thing to think about what will the future look like if we move forward and try to rebuild. We also wanted to talk about Governor Newsom's decision in California. He issued an executive order to put a moratorium on the death penalty in the state. California currently has the most people on death row, 737 people, but they have not done an execution since 2006 because they there were legal challenges to their lethal injection procedure. And it sounds like they were coming close to solving that incredibly difficult problem. And despite the fact that they had had several public votes to move forward with the death penalty and not to end it, They love a referendum in California, and I think they've done two on the death penalty. Governor Newsom used his own executive powers to prevent any executions, even if the lethal injection procedure was approved. There are 737 people on death row in California right now. So of those folks, whomever has their execution date come up during his tenure, they'll automatically receive a commutation. And he is quoted as saying, I won't be able to sleep at night. This is about who I am as a human being. This is about what I can and cannot do. And he said that he thinks voters knew where he stood on the death penalty Mm -hmm. when they elected him in November, that he won by a landslide. And so this is the right thing for him to do. I don't know. I think this is really hard. I am firmly against the death penalty. This Friday, we're going to tell you five things that we think you need to know about criminal justice reform. And then on Tuesday's episode, we're going to talk about criminal justice in America. So I am with Governor Newsom. I cannot imagine being a governor and being asked for a commutation of sentence and signing off on a person receiving the death penalty. I can't imagine doing that. I also worry a lot about executive power. I also worry about fairness. And in one sense, you could very callously say, How unfair for the people who receive this commutation versus the people who don't with a new governor in office. Mm. But there is a piece of me that so strongly thinks that we should not be killing people that I understand why he did this. 
And I understand why these referendums fail, because every time you try to put in front of voters an issue like the death penalty in such direct terms, there is a campaign where we hear about the worst of the worst things that people have mm-hmm. done. And it's really hard to combat that. So I, I just don't know if this was a wise thing to do. It does feel to me like a just thing to do. And I think it's hard to know when, when those things intersect and when they conflict. I think that Governor Newsom did the right thing. I don't think it's an expansion of executive power. I think he's doing it well within the limits of his power. He's not ending the death penalty in California. He's just issuing the executive order and basically stopping the process, Right. refusing to act as enforcing the process while he's a governor. I think it's a conversation we have over and over in this podcast about trustee versus representative. In a democracy, are our elected leaders supposed to just represent our will Are they trustees? Are they supposed to do what they see as right, even if it is in violation of the majority's will? And I think for better or for worse, California is a little referendum happy. And while I wish that we had a little more access to that process in Kentucky, we can't vote on anything until the state body decides to put it on the ballot. I don't know if it's the state senate or the state house or if they both have to approve it, but it has to go through those that legislative body to get on the ballot, which I think is too Part of a process. I wish there was a balance between, I mean, it's so easy to get on the ballot in California. I always think about Los Angeles voted to spend an insane amount of money on a public high school. I think it's like the Robert F. Kennedy Public High School. Because who's going to vote against that? If you're looking down at a piece of paper and it says, do you want a better school for your kids? Yeah, everybody's going to vote. Yes. But that's why we don't put everything in our government to a vote. Because sometimes there are bigger things that we're considering than just do we want it, do we like it, do we not. We're thinking about ethics. We're thinking about budgets. We're thinking about the balance of power. And we're not a majority rules country. We have processes and a constitution in place to protect the minority. And I think that trustee role is an important part of that. And I think with – just like when you said – The death penalty is a difficult discussion, easily manipulated emotionally by people's fear, by people's anger and disgust by some of the crimes committed by the people on death row. And so I think that there is an important point, particularly with the death penalty, when you need to have a trustee step up and say, no further, we're not going to do this anymore. I understand that it's difficult and that some people feel that death is the only form of justice. but the process, which is something a trustee should be concerned with, is not fair or even 100 percent accurate. We have absolutely executed innocent people in this country. There is zero doubt in my mind. There's any even pretty good evidence in Texas with a specific case. So a trustee to step forth and say, I cannot do this with a with a conscience because the process is not good enough when we're talking about people's lives, uh, I think is I think is the right thing to do. And it may just be a matter of a process about the legality of his decision, which I'm certain will be challenged in court because he has the power to do this one one at a time. Right. These mm-hmm. dates could come up. The petitions come to him and he grant commutations every single time. Yeah. And I imagine that's where a court would land on the the legality of his action. But we'll see. I think that the trustee model and the limits of executive power is a good segue to talking about the national emergency. Our Senate stepped up and agreed with the House of Representatives that President Trump exceeded his authority in declaring a national emergency. That wasn't really what they decided. I guess what they decided is this isn't a national emergency. Mm-hmm. But the way my, most of them spoke about it was they feel like he exceeded his power. That's right. And and I think that issue is squarely put before them in determining whether to override his veto because he issued his veto, which would mean he would continue on exercising his power under the National Emergencies Act. It looks like the Senate is very far from having enough Republicans to achieve the needed two-thirds threshold to override his veto, which I think is an incredible shame. Because I do think this issue is much less about whether you think what's happening at the border is a national emergency and much more about what you think about the fact that something Congress explicitly rejected under its power to decide how we spend money in this country has been circumvented by a president acting unilaterally. 
it was clearly a political decision for many of the Senate Republicans. The only Senate Republican up for re-election who voted for this resolution was Susan Collin. Spoiler alert, she is who I will be complimenting for the other side this week. And so I think some of them, it just came down to, I don't want to stand against the president when I'm up for re-election, even though (laughs) many of my colleagues who are in safer political spaces than me feel like it was exceeding his power as the executive. So It's so disappointing for me because this kind of topic is why I have always thought of myself as conservative, right? This is the thing. If I were going to be a single issue voter, it would be the single issue of making sure America remains a democratic republic, right? Not a monarchy, not I mean this is this is the issue for me and I it's just gross to see people like Lindsey Graham saying, "How can the president possibly exceed his authority when he's acting pursuant to authority given to him by Congress?" Lindsay, do you think we don't have any interpretation of laws in this country? Like, it just, I don't know. Also, bless your heart. We've got your own. I could go and find a million things you said about how Obama was exceeding his power and authority as president. So historical record exists. Friendly reminder, Lindsey Graham. Well, here's the thing. I thought that President Obama absolutely exceeded his power on DACA, even though I 100 percent agree with the substance of what DACA does. I thought it was an overreach of his authority. But there's a better case for DACA than there is for this. Right. Mm -hmm. Because DACA arguably is more in the national security realm. This is about money. This is about funding a specific project. And money is specifically the province of Congress. They haven't left the president unable to defend the border. They left the president unable to build a specific structure at the border. And that is Congress's job. I'm sure that's going to be the court's decision. And I think the more I see them kick things to the court because they don't want to do what their job is, I see why... Mitch McConnell really does have an eye for his legacy because the only thing he sees the Senate's – the most important job the Senate has is to confirm justices because that's where we put all the hard decisions anyway. So why not stack them with conservatives? It's just so frustrating. I don't have a fully formed thought yet about this, but I want to get your opinion. I'm reading Madeleine Albright's book on fascism, and it's something that I'm reading very slowly because I want to think about it. And also it's just – it's a lot to take in, so small doses of it are enough for me. But – She talks a lot in her book about historically fascism looks great when it starts. It's efficient. It's effective. You want something taken care of? We got it. You want the trains to run on time, right? Exactly. I'm in charge now. I've got it. And it feels really empowering to people who support this person because they think all the things I care about, you're finally making them happen. So I'll sacrifice a little bit of freedom in order to get the things that I want. And when I think about that with what's unfolding today, I I get why people who support the president feel like this looks pretty good. You're finally doing, you're getting some things done that I really care about. Good for him. He's going to build that wall no matter what anybody says. But at what price? And at the same time, I look at the way we keep kicking everything to the court, as you just said, and the court cannot be our save ourselves default mechanism every single time, right? And if you look at the history of our country, we've done that a lot, the Big progress on really important things, things of great consequence. So often we've had to have the court come in and save us because our representatives don't have the political will to do what they think they should do. Right. I have no doubt that if you polled every Republican in the Senate, the vast majority of them would say this isn't right what the president has done. And I just worry about where we're headed in the in the long view of our democracy about that fear. And that is that is not particular to Donald Trump, right? He's just pushing it a little bit farther down the road. I think this is a good transition to the update with Brexit because when I was in college and we would talk about this exact struggle in the United States between the executive and the legislative branch and the role of the courts, 
I had one professor in particular who would always point to the parliamentary system and be like, this is why it's superior. This is why this is the better system. We should be a parliamentary system because when you come to an impasse, then you dissolve it and you have to build a new coalition. Well, turns out (laughs) we have found the one scenario in which the parliamentary system is also struggling under the weight of an impasse. Last week, Theresa May, bless her soul, came with another proposal, which was voted down. So then they voted to, should we just leave? Should we just leave Brexit without a plan? And that was voted down. So they voted to delay and ask for an extension because the deadline is like this week. March 19th, I think, is the deadline. They don't have a plan in place. So she's going to go back, try to get another proposal, which is not going to reach any sort of real solution for the stopgap in Ireland, which seems to be the real sticking point at this point. And they're going to be back in the same place. They can't get rid of Teresa. Nobody else wants to do the job. They're not dissolving. Labor, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what's going to happen. It's such a mess, and it seems intractable. It seems like it's not going anywhere. Connecting this to the conversation about California, you know, this began with a referendum. It's a Mm -hmm. good example of the limitations of pure democracy on hard decisions, because I think when you vote on do we stay or do we leave, the intricacies of what that process looks like, what that actually means, that's just not something that's within the grasp of an ordinary voter. They should have been voting on do you want a hard border in Ireland? Yes or no? (laughs) (laughs) That's what should have been on the referendum. But, But, you know, and how could they have voted on that intelligently? Because that doesn't affect people every day. It's really difficult. When you were talking about the death penalty and how unfair our process is, I was thinking, I agree with everything you're saying. Also, I don't think we should execute innocent people. If we had a perfectly fair process, I would still be against the death penalty. Do you know how many hours of my life I have spent reading and thinking about this to get there, though? You know, if Mm -hmm. I had just... 10 years ago, had that question put to me, I would have been in a very different place. It is from a lot of thought and study about how we do this, the consequences of it, the economic and social impact. And that's just, we're not all doing that on every issue every day. So putting it to the country, hey, should we stay in this thing or not? Like that was such a historic error on David Cameron's part. I know I'm not saying Mm -hmm. anything new there, but wow. And then just to bail. To make this mess and be yeah. like, hmm, I'll leave somebody else to clean it up is just so abhorrent. I'm sorry. It is. And I have a lot of respect for Theresa May because I, I think that she, you know, I don't agree with her politically. I don't think they should obviously leave the European Union. But she is just doing this thankless job that no one else wants to do. Nothing's stopping her from doing the Cameron route and being like, you know what? Forget it. You don't like anything I propose. I'm out. And to just keep sticking it and sticking it and sticking it. And like, I, but the Ireland question, the solution she's presenting is basically like, well, we'll just hope technology comes along where we can enforce a border without checkpoints eventually. Like, bless your heart, that's not a real solution either, because there's not a great solution with Ireland, because you're either inviting Northern Ireland to join the Republic of Ireland or you're using it for Britain to use as a backdoor to the European Union without having to be a part of the taxation and the parliament and all this stuff. And that's so difficult. It's why they should just revote and not leave personally. You thought of a good analogy for this, though. The more I've thought about this, the more it feels like some of the divorce cases I worked on when I was first out of law school, where one person wants out of the marriage because... They're just not feeling it anymore, right? It's cramping their style and they need to be they need to be fully themselves. And the other person is like, you've got to be kidding me. We have a child together. We got to parent this child together. Now, historically, that is not an accurate way to think about Ireland. So please don't be offended if you're in Ireland. But I've just been thinking about like that that border battle is kind of the the genesis of we want to get divorced, but we can't untangle ourselves completely. Mm-hmm. There's no way. Mm-hmm. And the way this is all unfolded, it's been like, yeah, the person who wants to get divorced is really jazzed about it at the beginning. And then they start to understand divorce sucks. It's really hard. It's really expensive. Yep. You lose things in the process. You don't just yep. get divorced and have this amazing new and life. Come out whole. You right. lose things. And so they go along and they're like, wait a second. I don't want to lose anything. 
And now the EU, the partner who didn't want out of this marriage, is like, but I thought you wanted your independence. Good luck Mm -hmm. to you. Like, if you Mm -hmm. wanted to do this, we're doing it, man. And of course, it culminates now in we need more time. You know, we need to continue (laughs) this hearing because in this divorce, where I think the EU is saying, we'll take our chances with the judge, right? That's kind of where they are. They can't reach a settlement. And the EU is saying, we'll take our chances with the judge. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately for everybody, the judge is global markets, you know? And so, of course, the UK is like, Oh, we need a continuance. Just kidding. Let's press pause on this whole thing. And it's yep. it's a classic dynamic that was totally foreseeable. Yep. Well, let's move on and compliment the other side. As I previously mentioned, I will be complimenting Susan Collins, who I am still very angry about at about the Kavanaugh hearing. Let me preface and say that. However, to be the only person up for re-election and to still stand by and say this exceeds executive power. I thought was the right call and probably a difficult one. And so I am complimenting Susan Collins this week. People don't have to be perfect to be praiseworthy, which is often the case in complimenting the other side. I just want to give a big shout out to the legislature in New Mexico, which has a Democratic majority right now. They are dramatically increasing education funding including 6% salary increases and work toward a plan for sustainable universal early childhood education funding. And at a time when we have teacher strikes going on in so many states and a dramatic battle over education in Kentucky, it was heartening to see a state prioritizing these issues. Next up, we are going to discuss the events in New Zealand and the rise of white nationalism globally. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive & Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive & Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive & June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. As everyone knows, the city of Christchurch in New Zealand is in enormous grief and anger over the mass shooting that took place late last week at two mosques. I have been watching in awe of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's leadership following this. She has said that New Zealand's cabinet is absolutely unified around reforming New Zealand's gun laws. She says that they will unveil the specifics of that within 10 days. There is incredible video footage of the prime minister mourning with people who attended services at those mosques. And you can just see that New Zealand thought this didn't happen there. I've been really struck by the difference between a mass shooting in the United States and the outpouring of grief here Mm -hmm. and in Christchurch, where I think people felt very safe and there isn't the kind of numbness that we feel here in the United States following these events. And Sarah mentioned on IGTV this morning that we heard an interview on NPR with someone who owns a gun store in New Zealand. And he has already just decided to stop selling automatic weapons. He said he was going to wait for further guidance from the police, but he's just voluntarily not selling them, even though the demand has skyrocketed for them. So people are taking this very differently than we do in America. And it's it's quite something to observe. I mean, they have a history of responding strongly, much like Australia did. They had a mass shooting event in the 90s and made dramatic changes to their gun laws. I mean, you have to have a government official, like, come and do, like, a home visit to make sure you're storing them safely, which I think is unbelievable. So I think part of it is they have a history of experiencing an event, responding strongly. But they also, like Australia, have a strong gun culture. This is not a European nation. Like, this is a nation where lots of people own guns, maybe not to the extent and to the amount that Americans do. So... It's an interesting mix of both a gun culture, but then a very different type of response, like a gun culture that doesn't experience regular mass shootings, like you said, so they're not numb. But it also it just it doesn't seem like anyone is seeing this as a political moment. It doesn't seem like anyone in the country is taking it as their chance to exploit what they see as the weaknesses in the other side's political stances or ideologies, which I think is refreshing and an actual showing of leadership that the country really needs when it's experiencing that level of grief. The political aspect of the moment, I think, is encapsulated in a senator who published a statement that is shocking in how callous it is and how brazenly racist it is. You know, I don't know if you've seen this statement, but the senator who is now famous for being egged and turning around and punching the kid who egged him on Twitter He wrote this statement that basically said, like, obviously, this shouldn't have happened. But the bigger issue is that we should stop letting these people in our country. I mean, that's kind of what it came down to. I mean, let what people? White nationalists from Australia? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I know that's not what he's saying, but it's like, oh, sorry. No, I think that's right. I mean, and I think he is being rightly seen as expressing some fringe views, but he got elected. And Mm. and that's really where we think the conversation for our show should go because a lot of the discussion around New Zealand has talked about how America is basically exporting white supremacy right now. And we Mm -hmm. need to do some soul searching about that. So I am subscribed to Judd Legume's email newsletter, which I highly recommend, called Popular Information. And this week it was on the rise of white nationalism. And he had some really interesting statistics 
He was specifically responding to President Trump's statement that this is a small problem, which is just not. It's not a small problem and it's a growing threat. He says, over the last 10 years, according to data analyzed by the Anti-Defamation League, 73.3% of all domestic extremist-related killings have been perpetuated by right-wing extremists, compared to 23.4% perpetuated by terrorists motivated by Salafi jihadism and 3.2% by left-wing extremism. So last year in the United States, domestic extremists killed at least 50 people. And the ADL data shows that white supremacist propaganda efforts increased 182 percent with 1,187 distributions across the United States in 2018 from 421 incidents in 2017. And it's a global phenomenon. In Europe, far-right attacks jumped 43 percent between 2016 and 2017, while deaths resulting from terrorism decreased 27% worldwide, the threat of far-right political terrorism is on the rise. Last night I watched a documentary from PBS on Oklahoma City. And even in my own mind as someone who experienced that terrorist event, Timothy McVeigh was sort of this lone wolf. And this documentary does such an excellent job of connecting the dots between white nationalism and the violence in the white nationalist movement that rose in the 80s and is really connected not only to the events in Ruby Ridge and Waco, but most certainly the events in Oklahoma City. And I think it's just so hard because terrorism, the word and our ideas about it, were defined and set so strongly by the events of 9-11 And because of that and because of racism and because of our own biases, white nationalism is not portrayed in the same way, even though it should be. Just because an Osama bin Laden-like figure doesn't get on YouTube and claim responsibility under the name of one specific group every time there's an act of white nationalistic terror doesn't mean that there's not an organization and doesn't mean that there's not a growing threat and that this is a group of people driven to violence by an ideology, not a bunch of a small group of random actors. That's not what's happening. So our friend Diana Butler-Bass did a really excellent Twitter thread on this this weekend. She sat down and read the writings of this shooter. I hate to call it manifesto. I feel like that gives it greater gravity than he's entitled to. Mm Mm-hmm. But she talked about how it connected with her experiences of talking with people in the church about how the church to be a thriving body in the future needs to embrace greater diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of human beings, that we need to learn more about each other, that we need to listen to people we've never listened to before, that we need to open our doors and invite people in. And she often, in varying degrees, she said in this thread, experienced some anxiety from folks about that. She said a lot of people really embraced it, were excited and enthusiastic and recognized that this would enrich the church. So I I know we can't stop talking about Mayor Pete, but I thought his letter to the Muslim community in South Bend, Indiana, where he said we would be poor without you was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And Diana Butler Bass said she, you know, had people who who got that. But there were also people who talked about the declining birth rate among white Christians with alarm. And this idea that the church was going to look very different in a few years, look very different with alarm, and that that is reflected in this murderer's writings, that he is concerned that fewer and fewer white babies are being born. And that's just true. And I accept it as a fact. My descendants will not look like me. I remember when Steve King had tweeted some kind of awfulness on Twitter, as is his way, and someone responded, and I wish I knew who it was so I could give this person credit, but the person just said, LOL, all your grandkids are going to be brown. (laughs) And I thought, that's just true, right? That's true. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that we, I, I just like metaphysically believe that all things are constantly in the process of coming toward one another. But not everybody is there. And it's a serious problem. And I think, Sarah, you said it so well, that is an animating ideology and needs to be treated as such. And it's one that we are affording 
more powerful tools to all the time. Michael Barbaro on The Daily on The New York Times said that YouTube is almost like an onboarding process for white supremacists. And it took my breath away because of the truth of that. So interesting. I mean, I think that they had these processes and this development in place and the Internet just put kerosene on that fire because, you know, they talk about with Timothy McVeigh, a lot of the way white nationalists met each other. I mean, first of all, Timothy McVeigh did not act alone. He had helpers. And so often they would meet at gun shows and they would go to these gun shows and they would share their, you know, VHS tapes about Waco conspiracy theories or whatever in their anti-government sentiments. And they would sort of learn from each other and organize that way. Well, how much easier did the Internet make this? And I, I keep thinking about the the recent write-ups about monitors for like Facebook and Twitter and the people who have to go through the the hate-filled postings and the conspiracy-filled postings and basically decide that they need to be kicked off. And how you hear these people write like, I need counseling, I'm traumatized, I don't believe 9-11 happened anymore. Like, there's a part of our brains that is so susceptible to these ideologies. I mean, I think a lot about the righteous mind and Jonathan hates the five foundations of his sort of moral philosophy, and one of them is sanctity and purity and sort of this abhorrence for disgusting things or sort of degradation, right? And in some ways, look, we're before you get on your high horse and think, oh, well, I have no concerns about purity. That's such an antiquated thought process. Think about how you react to nutrition. There's so much sanctity in the progressive left about sort of food and diet and non-GMOs or organic food. Like we all, there is a part of all of us that is susceptible to these sort of foundations, be it loyalty to the group or purity and sanctity and how those play out and, and how we can recognize that and channel that in a more positive way. Like part of the reason I think that white nationalism is so easily grown is because there is a need for belonging and a need for a mission. You know, they talk about with Timothy McVeigh, he got out of the military. He thought he would be easily employable because he had had served and he felt like he peaked in the military and he got out and nobody wanted him and there was no connection for him to be found within his community. He didn't feel of service. He didn't feel like he was needed. And so there was a fertile ground to be played upon with these ideologies, much in the same way that happens with jihadism, right? Like you you have young men who feel purposeless, who feel unwelcome or pushed around or just inessential, and they want to feel a part of something. And we have to face that, and we have to recognize that, and we have to stop blowing it off in the ways that we have have done for so long. I just think we don't have enough collective endeavors. Mm-hmm. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. 
Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. At this point in our history, this is going to sound far afield and maybe it is, but I was just talking with someone who is new to working in a law firm environment, not the firm that I worked for, but just another environment like that. And and she was like so confused about a lot of the things that happened and, and fundamentally was talking about how people sort of come in and do their work quietly and go home and there's not a lot of connection to other people. And I said, don't worry about it. That is the nature of these organizations. That's the culture. And it has a lot to do with the work, right? A lot of being a good lawyer is spending time in deep thought, reading, reflecting, writing. They're solitary activities. Mm -hmm. It makes it really hard to have a great, vibrant, thriving workplace culture because there's not a lot of connection. And as I've been reading about the New Zealand massacre and the shooter and the kind of online world that he inhabited, he really sounds like a person whose identity was based on the Internet. And I just don't think that that community that you find as a substitute on the Internet for real interaction with people and not just interaction with people, but interaction where you're trying to do something, where you're trying to mm -hmm. accomplish something. We all have in us varying degrees of those philosophical, cultural, just human brain biases that you were talking about. So we all have those and our way to evolve ourselves out of them, work through them, contain them is usually by working with other people in ways that grow us, right? And I think my concern about the internet, particularly as it relates to white supremacy, is it takes someone who maybe has just a tiny bit of that. It's not wrong to to kind of go, oh, my gosh, like, my grandkids might not look like me. Okay, so you take that tiny bit of, huh, and through solitary activity where it feels like you're connecting with other people, but not mm -hmm. really. You don't have to actually get anything done. Nothing actually has to come out of that. Then you feel like you are in this community of folks who are going to really elevate you. And I don't know. I, I think that tool is what we like. We've got to figure out how we limit the impact of that tool because it's, it's just such an accelerant. It's, it's in some ways like, the conversation about automatic weapons. Yes, there are still going to be handguns and revolvers and whatever, but look at the damage that is done with an AR-15. It's a totally different thing. And I feel like that's what the internet is. We would have this network of white supremacists regardless, but look at what the internet does to that. Mm -hmm. 
the reality is, as we face the growing threat of white nationalism accelerated by the internet, we have a complete absence of leadership in the Trump administration with regards to this problem. Not only do they not see it as a problem, but Donald Trump is a racist, not an unconscious bias kind of racist, a regular old, has very racist beliefs about black and brown people that he no doubt believes are founded in his personal experience and history. Like, I think that's the first thing to acknowledge is he is absolutely a racist. I think Stephen Miller is a white nationalist. I think he takes it, and I think Steve Bannon is too. And I think that they exploit his racism to continue to grow and send dog whistles and do things like close down programs within the White House that the Obama administration set up with tiny pots of money to rehabilitate neo-Nazis. What do you think people are going to think when you close down programs like that and continue to say neutral, if not positive things about white nationalists? I'm at a loss. I'm at a total loss. And what we're seeing, I think, is that it matters. Because I think a lot of people would have said, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you can't do that much as the president about race, so it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. Mm-hmm. I think it matters that the president uses his words in ways that are hurtful to people. I think it matters that this administration has found ways to convert those thoughts and biases to policy that has been incredibly harmful. And it's not limited to the president. I mean, look, I've I voted Republican my entire adult life, and I am really ashamed of how the party has condoned this kind of attitude for a very long time. We had people pretty upset about our conversation with Deborah Lipstadt about Representative Omar. And I understand that the Republican Party has not one ounce of the moral high ground to chastise someone over insensitive remarks. And the idea that Republicans would call for Representative Omar to be kicked off of the Foreign Relations Committee is really rich when you think about Steve King and the fact that Steve King only recently has started to be dealt with. And I thank Minority Leader McCarthy for that. We've got a huge problem within this House that needs to be set right. And the president is at the top of this list. And that's another reason why we think about this veto override. It is so discouraging that people feel that their only electoral option is to stand at President Trump's side as though they're incapable of changing the dialogue, too, as though they're mm-hmm. incapable of communicating with their constituents in ways that matter, as though leadership only exists within the president. It's all really consequential. And it's not just being nitpicky, politically correct, social justice warrior, whatever pejorative term you want to apply to it. And look, I've I've been there sometimes. I've kind of rolled my eyes at like the bully put pulpit is not that consequential. I was wrong about that. That's what I've learned mm-hmm. over the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, because if they continue to act like that, they will remain inconsequential and they will. I mean, it's like every time you bow to him, you fall to his will. You say the president is the only person that matters in our government, then he just grows more powerful. You will lose the power to control the conversation. You will decrease the power of the United States Senate, which I thought was something senators, at least on a personal level, were interested in maintaining. And I think there's no way to look at not just the growing acts of violence, but in what universe should we all not be ashamed That this man committed this horrendous act and put our president's name in his manifesto. Like, in what, to just blow this off and to say it's nothing, it's one guy, and to basically roll your eyes at this is so disgusting. It's just disgusting. I'm sorry. I think we need to be at a place where we can take a moment as a country And say, maybe we don't agree on what the solutions are, but let's get agreement around the problem. 
Let's mm-hmm. get agreement around the fact that it's not just one guy. And it's not just one guy as it comes to mass shootings. It's not just one guy as it comes to white nationalism. Okay? So it's not just one guy. Let Can we, can we form some consensus around that? We can debate and, and should debate how we tackle the gun problem and how we tackle this this enormous problem, I think, of people feeling lonely and insecure about their very identities in ways that quickly escalate into violence. We should debate that stuff vigorously. But can we at least agree that it's not one guy? Mm-hmm. We will continue to talk about this here and on Patreon and elsewhere and look forward to you joining the conversation. But we're going to try to end your Tuesday listening on a lighter note now. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? Well, I know I'm really late to the party, but I finally saw Hamilton. Oh, wow. That's so exciting. Chad and I saw it in Cincinnati last Sunday, and it was wonderful. And we were both talking about how I think when you see something that's been like so hyped up and it's so expensive to go, that there's a part of you that's like, it can't be that good, right? <laughs> but we both False. were really impressed. I mean, it was so innovative, you know, I, I, like I really get why it's become what it's become. Yeah. I mean, I, one of my favorite things I ever heard was in the PBS documentary, I think it was the original theater owner, basically said that Lin-Manuel Miranda is He's like the reason he's such a genius and such a big deal is like he's like the second coming of Shakespeare because the innovation of Shakespeare was to take these sort of language of the common man and morph it into a higher art form. I mean, I can't believe that in the the arena of musical theater, somebody wasn't like, hey, you know what? We need more words. (laughs) We need more words to tell more story in a shorter period of time while we're singing. What could possibly allow us to do that? You know, rap, rap, of course, a rap could allow you to do that. And so I just, oh, God, you know, I mean, we all know how I feel about Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's the best humanity has to offer. I could listen to it a million times and most likely have. And I'm so, so glad you finally got to see it. The part of it that has stuck with me more than anything else is the that would be enough line mm. and, and that song and just kind mm. of the the marriage and what marriage meant to them. I think that's. I don't know that any aspect of Hamilton is under discussed, but that part jumped out at me way more than other aspects of it that I've heard tons and tons about. Well, you need to get the book because there's so many interesting, like the Hamilton, a revolution book where you can read like the liner note. Like it's like liner notes, like his notes on why he wrote certain words. And it's also layered. But I always think about their marriage as it's hard because he seems they were so desperately in love. And also he cheated on her. Spoiler alert. Although, come on, if you don't know that by now, I can't help you. And I always tell people, like, there's a part of me that thinks, like, the the type of partner he was for that period of time, even with <laughs> the adultery, was so out of the realm of, like, what relationships were usually like that you can hear that in her devotion to him. Does that make sense? Yes. So you need historical perspective on what a man and wife were to each other back then to really appreciate how different they were. What are you thinking about outside of politics? Well, I'm thinking about couches. I lost <laughs> I lost a whole day. I lost a whole entire day of my life to online couch purchasing options. I mean, I, I bet I spent six hours looking online for couches on Friday night. And I did settle on some. They're coming next week. I'm very, very excited. But it's put me in this very intense spring frame of mind, which we are going to get into in more detail on The Nuanced Life on Wednesday, where I just, I want to spring clean, spring revive, spring redecorate every dang thing in my house. I'm having to just rein myself in. But we're going to talk about that in more detail on The Nuanced Life, because we're going pretty long today already (laughs) over here on Fancy Politics. Thank you for joining us as we try desperately to catch up with the news of the week. We are going to do a introduction, five things you need to know about criminal justice reform on Friday, and we'll have an extended discussion with that next Tuesday. And like we said, tomorrow on The Nuance Life, we'll be talking spring. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.